R710 on your dial, your station for news in New York. Coming up, Gene Shepard. I'm writing this for every member of our family. There are six of us. Mom has false teeth, and uh, there must be something wrong with them because she takes them out the minute she comes home. <laughs> These teeth turn up all over the house by the telephone on top of the television set next to the rabbit ears. And uh, once, when I was going to read a newspaper, they fell out of the sports section. What shall we do about mother's false teeth? Deep in the heart of darkness in the lost and gone soul of man the great waves about crash against the rock of adversity. <laughs> Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Harry. That was real good. Now, if you'll reset that for me, please, if you will. It's very scary there, that lady with the false teeth. Well, that's nothing. I, I could uh, give a better question to Ann Landers along that kind of... Uh, of course, we're living in the age of the universal expert. And uh, Miss Landers, I'm sure, is quite capable of solving the false teeth problem. And uh, possibly even from uh, personal experience, I don't know. But nevertheless, she's quite capable of solving it, I'm sure. However, 
Uh, that, uh, you know, brings up uh, some pretty awful thoughts. Can you imagine opening up the paper and the false teeth fall out of the sports section? And, uh, mother's sitting, oh, hey, that, that's snow. I was looking all over the house for them. And, uh, the corset, I have, uh, in my, uh, somewhat limited experience, I've had a couple of traumatic things that have to do with it. This is not a show about false teeth tonight. I just don't want you to get the wrong idea. But uh, my uh, grandmother had a terrible thing that she used to do with false teeth. Uh, you, know how, you know how people uh, get an idea that something they do is funny and they just keep doing it all their life, this funny thing? Uh, once, when they were maybe you know, 19 years old, they got a laugh on it. And so they do it all the time. They, uh, it's, the, it's an automatic response. They, they just do. Like, for example, there was this boss I had. Uh, well, he, oh, it was uh, back in the steel mills, as a matter of fact. And I used to come in every day with the mail. And he'd sit like a toad in this great big office, about 5,000 people. I said, he sits in the middle of it all. And a very important guy had, had a vest. And anybody who wears a vest with a chain, with a big tooth, big yellow tooth hanging on it. That's a guy to watch out for. This is not an elevator man. And, uh, yeah, big tooth, tremendous thing. And he'd sit there, had gray sideburns. And every morning I would come in with a mail, say, at exactly seven minutes past nine. And this continued day after day after day after day. I, I dreaded going into this office. I would walk in. And I try to look away, see, as if I didn't see him. So I walk real fast across the, the, the whole room there. And over there is the out-in basket and all. I've got a whole stack of mail. And I'm heading towards the in basket real quick. And he would go, <clears throat> and I have to turn around. And this is his ploy. Every day we did this crazy pas de deux. He'd go, <clears throat> I'd turn around, and he'd say, moaning, good moaning, son, in a fake Southern accent. I don't know why he thought a fake Southern accent was funny. Good morning, son. And his minions would giggle. I'd say, morning, Mr. Snyder. Morning, son. I'd lay the mail down and go out. Apparently, he thought this was funny. And it got so... Oh, I could, <laughs> you know, little shticks, you know, the people... Uh, the, the, the funny thing. I had a, I had another engineer. You could uh, an engineer one time. You could not talk to this engineer, but what he would answer you with the worst, most. Uh, oh, I get mad when I think of it. The most despicable, completely corny German accent. I'd say, uh, "Oh, hey, Bob, uh, did you erase that tape?" He go yeah yeah I erased your tape yeah yeah that's just uh, very good. I just I just once say yes, <laughs> but yeah you know, it was his thing. He thought it was funny and well my grandmother had this thing. And the first time I saw it, I'll tell you, I had a little kid, you know, almost went out of my bird. Maybe that's why she did it because she did it all of her life, and she used to do it and get everybody embarrassed. She had false teeth, see, and she'd sit uh, after dinner at the table and uh, you know everybody's visiting there's about nine cousins my uncle ten aunts all sitting around and she would say uh, who would like to see my false teeth well it'd be a dead silence well somebody had to say yeah me because if you didn't 
then the whole afternoon was shot to hell. She would sulk. So uh, my cousin Buddy would say, Me, Grandma. Watch this now. And she would stick her false teeth out with her tongue <laughs> and snap them at us. <laughs> Don't look at me so solemnly, Herb. People do things like this. You have never lived. I, I can see Herb's lived a clean, nice, sheltered life. Well, uh, there are others uh, uh, equally as rotten as that, and uh, we're not here to, to discuss the esoterica of people's... Uh, that's folk humor. That's true folk humor. For example, my grandfather had a record. This was in the same family. It was, he was her husband, so you can see where the teeth thing comes naturally in this family, uh, that uh, we had to sit every Sunday when we went over to his house for three minutes. It seemed like 400 hours. Well, he played on his record player a record of people doing nothing but laugh. Okay, you've heard that record? You know, that, that, that laughing record? Well, he just used to think this was unbelievable. He would, well, this was his big thing. He never said anything funny himself. But this record did it for him. He'd put it on, he'd turn it on, and everyone would laugh, you know, politely. <laughs> you know, that, that record's okay when you hear it once in a while, like every two or three hundred years. But uh, if you listen to it every time you go over there on a Sunday, it, it became sticky. And you'd get this, this, this itchiness down around. You know that, have you ever been so bored you itch? It's a terrible feeling. Well, I one time went to a speech that uh, John Kenneth Galbraith gave. Mr. Galbraith has to be one of the dullest speakers, quite possibly since the great stone face of the mountain. And, and he has a sort of a flat delivery. And he started out, all of you know, and then he started to run down. He told a very feeble joke, and already I began to feel crawling up and down my back. The, the, the same itchiness that I used to get at my grandmother's house. And for the same reason, it's that feeble kind of humor. And he goes on and on. I even saw people who were great fans of his heavily falling to the side, heads lolling, and then once in a while somebody would <laughs> wake up. <laughs> well, uh, this, uh, you know, this, this kind of thing is, uh, is not easy to handle. I like the other day. I mean, you can't, you can't answer questions... Uh, Oh, hey, listen, we just got a note here. You want me to make that note there? We've been getting calls all day long from people about our show, TV thing. It's going to be repeated Wednesday, Sunday, or Wednesday. It's the one we did Sunday. It's Wednesday at 7. That's tomorrow night at 7 on 13, of course. Uh, you know, it's a shame so many people see that show in black and white. It's just, it's lost, I'm sorry, in black and white. So if you've got black and white, please don't watch it. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm asking you, I'm, I'm being serious. Please don't watch it, because please though then write and tell me that you didn't like it. Uh, almost everybody who writes and says that saw it in black and white. It's just a fact. Uh, so, you know, you just have to accept that. You're behind the times, friend. That's all there is to it. You're still living in the days of the wind-up phonograph. And, uh, and it's passed you by. You can hear those feet marching past. The parade is now going over the horizon, and you're still trying to get your shoelace fixed. You busted it again. The vast parade. You know, speaking of vast parades, uh, I got a call uh, from a very official outfit, and they said that we'd like to ask you as a writer type and, uh, and a performer in the 
guy who deals in various types of things. Uh, what was one of the first, earliest literary influences on you? How do you handle a question like that? How would Norman Mailer answer? He has some, you know, fantastic uh, answer like uh, Aeschylus, uh, or uh, he was first turned down at the age of nine by uh, uh, War and Peace, and uh, from that time on, uh, Dostoevsky looms like a great mountain in his life. I wish I could say those things. You want to know what the first? Uh, my, and I couldn't tell him. So he said, "Oh, I'm going to think about it." See. So I, I can't really tell him it was the camel with the wrinkled knees, Raggedy Ann or Raggedy Andy, which was one of my very first influences. Uh, I can't tell him that it was uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Jack, uh, which what was that? The, the greatest of the Oz books was not the, the you know the greatest of the Oz books was not the Wizard of Oz. Which one was it? You know, there was a whole series of Oz books, and most people only think of the Wizard of Oz or the Land of Oz. This is another one. Number two, The Wizard of Oz, The Land of Oz, and there were about, oh, half dozen others, great classics. Which was the best one? Uh, best, I mean, to, from, from the standpoint of literary values and what the, uh, the most uh, definitive Oz book. Well, now, you can't say that to an official guy calling from Harvard writing a biography. I mean, you know, so, so, and that wasn't it, actually, it wasn't it. I'll tell you what it was. You curious? One day, I'm a little kid, see, this is W.O.R. New York, and I'm uh, hanging around the living room, and uh, there's a knock on the front door, you know, and the guy caught us flat-footed, flat-footed. As a matter of fact, my mother had a whole series of choreographed movements that were worked out any time a door-to-door salesman would appear. And, uh, yeah, she'd see him coming a half block away. She'd say, all right, Randy, you hide in the broom closet. And, uh, Janie, uh, you hide under the uh, dining room table and don't move. We used to pretend we weren't home, see? They'd look in. You ever seen them do that? They look right in you. Know? They look in like as if they're going to catch you under the living room table. I see you. Come on. Get out of there. You know? They'd go around the back and they'd knock on the back door. Well, this guy caught us flat-footed. I mean, one of the rare times I saw my old lady really caught flat-footed. We're sitting in the living room, you know, and the old man's got his uh, shirt off, and he's wearing his BVDs, and he's drinking a beer. And all of a sudden, the guy caught us flat-footed. And the old man says, well, who's there? Well, they don't say, a salesman, a peddler. No, no, they just keep going knocking, see. So they knock a couple of times. And finally, my mother goes and opens the door. And it's a guy selling magazines. Well, you know, he had such an unbelievable tale of woe. To begin with, I have rarely seen a guy cry the way he cried. You could see tears streaming down his cheeks. That he was not only uh, paying his own way through college, he was paying his crippled brother's way through college, and his poor father was blind, and he had uh, three nephews that had leprosy, and he was paying their way to go to India where they could join a leper colony. It was just sad. And... uh and all I need is seven more points to win the, the big prize, and I'll be sent to Oxford, and I'll get my master's degree, and lady, it'll just help all of us. And, of course, my mother's a total sucker for that, see. And five minutes later, she's filling out the forms, and the old man said, Oh, no! Oh, my God, no! And she turns to him and says, What magazine would you want? I said, Well, let me look at a list for crying out. He's caught, see. He couldn't be screwed. So she gives him the list, and he's all right, is when he checks it off. And she gives him the money. 
and this poor sad guy goes off. Of course, he's been making a killing all over the place. He, and he leaves, gets in his, uh, you know, his his new Chrysler and drives to the next block. And one month later, I'm sitting in the car in the back seat, and we are about to take a long trip. It's interesting how you can remember just one specific thing in your life. We're about to take a trip. We're about to drive all the way into southern Illinois where we're visiting my father's brother, my Uncle Paul, who was a shifty one. And we rarely went there. And, of course, whenever we did there, it was total boredom. So we were raising cane. You know, you didn't want to go. Me and my kid, shut up and we're going. And when we get to see Uncle Paul, you be nice to him. Oh, you hear that? And if you aren't nice, you're really going to hear about it when you get home. Now, you remember that. (laughs) Well... To quiet us down, I'm about nine. My mother says, here, I've got a magazine. Here, you look at this while we're going. And it had just come in the mail. It had a brown wrapper on it. Well, I was bigger than my kid brother, see, so I kicked him down to the floor of the car, and he's yelling and hollering. I'm holding him down with my foot on his neck. And I take the magazine, and I start opening it up. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. And this wild cover comes into view like a glacier coming out of the gloom of the midnight of the land of Greenland itself. Fantastic cover. And it just opened up a whole horizon. What's this? What's this? The front cover was in seven colors. Seven garish colors. And uh, it showed... A yellow monorail with windows all lit up and all these elegant-looking people wearing what looked like spacesuits. And this thing was rocketing through the night. And down below the monorail, you could see the beautiful spires and pillars of some kind of janadu. And above it, in red letters, it said, The Unbelievable World of the Future. A look through time and space. A forecast of how the world of 1965 will be. Well, I'll tell you, 1965 made uh, the Montreal and the Osaka World's Fair look like the slums of Glasgow. The world of 1965 was going to be crisscrossed with millions of lovely monorails taking people to their destination in beautiful, clean, air-controlled comfort, in pressurized cabins, spinning through the air at 650 miles an hour. No more traffic jams. No more trouble. No more No more strife. And to eat in the world of 1965, there was a big double-page spread. It showed a lady walking to the says, uh, housewife besides our menu for the evening meal. And she presses a button on the side of her kitchen and sets it. There's no kitchen at all. And from some great central kitchen in the city, the meals are instantly dispatched, cooked in the finest French Provençal manner. And it's billed to your life, Bill. Which, of course, will be almost minuscule in the lovely world of 1965 due to the fact that atomic energy and various new sources of energy have been tapped so the average citizen can live for possibly two or three cents a year. 
There will be no wars by the year 1965. Because by then, all poverty will have been eliminated from the face of the globe due to technology. Due to increasing humanity on the part of the world's leaders. And by 1965, all men will live to 150 years old. Many, many common diseases will be completely destroyed. Cancer will be a thing of the past. And the average citizen will travel about his countryside in his own private helicopter, easier than a car is driven. Education will, of course, be a third and a fourth and a fifth dimensional experience. By the age of ten, the average student will know a minimum of six languages, both conversationally and written. A world government will have emerged, a benevolent world government, which will see to it that no man goes hungry, no man goes ignorant, and all men live in eternal bliss. Personal communication will be a dream by the year 1965. A man merely presses a button and states into a small receiver on the side of his wall, I want to talk to Uncle George in Shanghai. Instantly, Uncle George appears in a life-size, magnificent television photo on the side of the wall in full color. And you can speak to Uncle George for as long as you care to speak to him for a mere quarter of a cent an hour due to atomic energy and various other fantastic achievements. And there will be no such things as misconnections and busy signals in the year of 1965. So I sat in the back seat of the car. I could hardly wait for the year 1965. The year sticks right in my craw, 1965. And I looked through that whole magazine. And before long, in fact, almost instantly, we arrived at my uncle, my uncle Paul's house. But that day I was living in ecstasy. My dreams, my ideals had been uplifted by this magnificent magazine to such a height now that it was impossible for me to be bored. And I've never been bored since. I keep in my, my deepest memory a vision of what 1965 will be like. I can hardly wait. I just thought you'd like that. <laughs> Thank you, Herbert. That was real good. And you know what? You know what magazine this was? Popular Mechanics. Popular Mechanics. I mean, it was, you know, like another world. And, and how can I tell, really, how can I tell the official biographer who talks with a very stiff upper lip that my earliest literary influence was popular mechanics. <laughs> it is and was. <laughs> and you know, uh, somebody, a couple of weeks ago, talk about a collector's item. Now, you just sit around there for one minute and get real close to me here. Because you know, I think, I think most of these magazines of this type uh, are really not factual. I mean, they're, they're kind of like the greatest science fiction there is. Because they're presented as, you know, the real thing. It's the way it's really going to be. And uh, 
And I, I just wonder, when you see, like, for example, you see 2001 Kubrick. Well, that's not so far from now. The year 2001 has no more chance of being like it is in that movie than you have of turning into King Kong. <laughs> we always cast our vision forward, and it's always so, so uh, clean and bright. Did you notice, did you see the picture? Did you notice the places they were in and the spaceships they were in were absolutely, magnificently immaculate? Well, friends, <laughs> that, uh, that's such a sad delusion. No wonder we're always being disappointed because we, we never take account of reality. We keep confusing realism and dreams and myth and, and uh, idealism, but it's all mixed up. And the one thing we never throw into it is reality. Like the other day, I'm on this 747. Now, you, you know, you, you, the, you, you see these fantastic TV commercials of whoosh, and it flies into the sunset. Well, the 747 to a guy who was in a Conestoga wagon would be an unbelievable idea. And the 747 that I was in, I happened to catch one leg of the flight, a late leg of this flight. And these people had been flying like for, say, 6,000 miles before I got on. I got on a plane. And I worked my way down through the aisle. And I noticed that on the floor there I could see cigarette butts. And I, I edged myself in and somebody has been sick in the seat behind me there. I could see it under the seat there. Somebody has carved his initials on this brand new 747, you know. And I'm sitting in this. Nobody ever puts these things in the visions of the future. I'm talking about the reality, what man does. He's, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's face it, there's a fluvia that's attached to us. A fluvia. And uh, somebody sent me this beautiful, absolutely mint copy. I had no idea that, that popular mechanics is as old as it is. He sent me a mint copy. That's absolutely as mint as it can be, really. Uh, and I don't know why he sent it to me. It just came in the mail. That's what reminded me of this whole, this whole schlamazel tonight. He sent me this mint copy of Popular Mechanics, and this is not a reprint. It's the actual thing. And I think if somebody brought out a reprint of this thing, it would be a it would be a wild seller. Popular Mechanics, August nineteen hundred and five. Price ten cents. 152 articles, 110 illustrations. I'm quoting from the cover. And the cover shows uh, two guys wearing derbies sitting in a strange-looking machine. And underneath it, it says, Side Seat Motorcycle Car. Operates under own power. And then the major articles in this month's issue is Wreck of the 18-Hour Racer. Submarine Sound Signaling. Ship blown up in Chicago. 300 sun power. Cargos unload themselves. And other wonders of the 20th century. You realize the 20th century was brand new when this was written? 1905. And their, their motto? Written so you can understand it. And that's important because back in those days, 1905, large amounts of people had not gone beyond second grade, if that. So written so you can understand it meant in simple four-letter words, 
cat, <laughs> rat, <laughs> that, and, uh, you know. You want to hear some of the articles? Listen to this one now. I, I, I was looking through this thing. Yeah, I know, I see it. I know, it says one. You want two of them? Oh, I see. Okay, would you, before we go on with that, hit the button, please. Here. This message sponsored by the United States Army. Well, I'll tell you, this thing here is, uh, is really worth looking at. To begin with, one of the things that gets me, apart from the articles, are the, are the, the unbelievable ads. You know, back in those days, there were very little controls over, over advertisers. And so they could say anything. And uh, they did. And here on the back cover, well, inside the back cover is this following ad. Can't you just see the two Sharpies wearing straw hats in, the, in August in Chicago smoking short cigars right in this one? And it's in two colors, red and blue. It says, don't speculate. Take a certainty. Ah, would you be open for an investment which will yield with reasonable assurance from 50 to 100% every year, rising up to 500% by the third year? There is an investment for you, friends, an investment that will enable you to put your surplus earnings to work and shorten the road to total wealth. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme, but a get-sure investment that is as sure as the seasons, and it increases as they roll by. Money will come in to such an extent that you will be hard-pressed to invest it. Study it out for yourself. Here's our plan. A rubber plantation in the finest rubber zone in the tropics. 200 to 250 trees per acre. Two pounds of rubber and upwards to the tree. Worth now $1.40 a pound. Gold. No speculation in that. Rubber is worth the money, and we have the rubber. Our rubber plantation consists of 6,000 acres, enough developed to ensure its success, <laughs> making a certainty of an enterprise that is within the reach of the mighty prudent workers that are now at work for us. Yes, you can save from 250 to $1,250 a month. The contract protects you in misfortune, sickness, or death. Send it a for a prospectus, and our salesman will call on you. The Montezuma Agency. How's that for a cunt? <laughs> the Montezuma Agency. Can't you see W.C. Fields sitting there? Working out thing. He says, yes, this is the Montezuma Agency, yes. You want to talk about a rubber plantation? Well, we have some wonderful gold mines, Darcy. Get out of the way, son. <laughs> the Montezuma Agency. Now, in those days, of course... Uh, boy, there's some wild stuff. Look at this. Boldness absolutely cured. At long last, a true and totally proved by seven registered doctors, baldness now can be cured for just one dollar. Incidentally, rheumatism, uh, they have a cure for rheumatism here. It's, and underneath it shows a foot, and it's got a black patch on the bottom. It says magic. It says rheumatism drawn out through the foot pores. New external remedy discovered which takes advantage of summer heat to rid the system of pain-causing acids. An absolutely 100% surefire cure for rheumatism, arthritis, and other bones of the foot and head. One dollar for a trial offer. Lay that one on the top of your head. Now, I want to I read uh, some of the great uh, things that were happening in those days. Here's a suit here advertised. Mail order suit. 
Not bad mail order, nothing ready-made. This is absolutely guaranteed to fit you perfectly every time. Send us your measurements, and for $12.50, you will have a London-style suit. I guess, can't you just see these rubes out in places like Rabbit Hash, Kentucky, ordering themselves a mail order suit? Walking around with those sandpaper pants on, going to the big dance, wearing a celluloid collar. Ah, hey, here's a here's a big opportunity for you guys. Earn from eighty dollars to hundred and twenty-five dollars a month. Learn to be a fireman and brakeman. No experience necessary. High wages promotion. There is nothing as sure as the railroads. The National Railroad Training School. Bum ba dum bump. Now listen to this one. Here's one for you. Shows two pictures. It shows one guy sitting there, and he's peering at a book. See, he's a distinguished-looking guy. He's got you know glasses on, little pince-nez there, and he's uh, got a beard. He looks a little bit like George Bernard Shaw, and he's reading a book. And uh, he's kind of peering at it, but you can just see he's reading very, very studiously. And he's wearing glasses. The next scene we see him, he is not wearing glasses. And he is reading the book, and he's looking very nonchalant. He's just holding it out there like, uh, you know, the type is leaping up at him. And he looks ten years younger. What does it say? The ideal sight restorer. We restore sight absolutely and permanently. Yes, this new sight restoring device corrects all defective vision. Nearsighted, longsighted, astigmatism corrected for just five dollars. Here's one for you. 239 Broadway, New York. Yes, sir. Get on in. See what that guy's got to offer. Now, uh, I want to read, though, a couple of great, uh, a couple of tremendous, uh, the, here's, there's one, one spectacular, uh, one spectacular piece in here. Listen to this one. Here's a car. Motorcycle sidecar. 1905, you know. Ingenious runabout for city streets. Makes 35 miles an hour. Will carry 400 pounds. The motorcycle sidecar is calculated to meet the needs of that large number of people who have use for a motor vehicle but who cannot afford any of the expensive machines that are on the road. Ideal for doctors. It shows this guy as a bicycle-looking machine. A curious-looking thing, and they're going down the street. And I, wonder, I wonder what one of those would cost today on the collector's market, if you could find one. Here's one for you. Uh, there's a story in here about New York. Listen to this one. It was just beginning. Motor police patrol wagon was a big thing. It says police departments are getting the motor fever. And already several patrol wagons in one city are in service, which are motor propelled. The illustration shows a wagon which the motor age says weighs 4,500 pounds, has a low body with heavy brass ratings on either side and a broad rear step. And it has uh, all kinds of stretchers and everything. And it was one of the very first motorized, uh, well, paddy wagon. And it wasn't really, you notice they don't even call it a car, they call it a motorized vehicle. And it looks like some kind of a big wagon with a motor in the front. And it says New York Police Department on the back of it. Now here's one. Here's a uh, here's a here's a very big article here about uh, what cars were doing in those days. It says uh, how automobiles raise dust, largely due to the construction of the car body. It appears that motor cars abroad are no better behaved in the matter of raising dust than with us. 
Here it has simply been declared a nuisance. There, the cause has been made a scientific study. If air were a perfect gas, there would be no dust. And now they have discovered it's the shape of the car body which causes the dust. You notice they didn't discover, <laughs> they didn't discover any pave in the road. <laughs> That's going at it, the you-know-what backwards. <laughs> well, here's one for you. They have proposed a gas engine for a, a warship. And here's a, here's a great-looking thing. It says, auto draws horse. It says, in the early days of automobiles, this is 1905 they're writing, he says, in the early days of the automobiles, there was no unusual sight to see an auto come limping back home drawn by a team of horses. The automobile tells of a recent incident in Ohio where a farmer had a horse die while drawing his wagon to market. The farmer, desiring to take the horse home, had, with help from sympathetic bystanders, loaded the dead animal into the wagon just as an auto came along. The owner, amused at the unusual occurrence, offered to give the farmer a tow home. It was accepted. And there's a picture of a guy towing the wagon back with a dead horse in the back. <laughs> oh, man, you see why this thing would sell. Now, here's something, though. Uh, here's, here's the major article in the current, this 1905 issue. And I wonder if there's anybody around who, who remembers this. It's hard to believe they did this. It's a scene of New York. See it? A black and white photograph. And you can't tell it's New York at all. You just see a big bright light going across the, the picture. Do you see it, Jerry? <coughs> big bright light. And you see a lot of little lights in the background. And the uh, title of the article is Artificial Moonlight. On the Hudson River, <coughs> where the scenery on either side is totally unsurpassed for grandeur. Pleasure excursions by night are many. Not, however, the time-honored moonlight excursions only, but excursions on very dark nights also, when the scenery is flashed upon the delighted vision by means of powerful searchlights. The effect produced by this means is fantastic and beautiful in the extreme, as each succeeding phase of the New York panorama is brought out in a radiance of light against the dark background of the night, and then as suddenly lost as a new view succeeds it. You see what they were doing? They were going along the river with a giant searchlight and playing it on the bank and on the houses and all that. Must have been wild. It says, in our illustration, is shown one of these pleasure boats, the C.W. Morse. I wonder if anybody who's listening ever rode on the C.W. Morse, fitted with a 36-inch projector illuminating the Capitol at Albany, New York. Naturally, the field for such powerful lights is a wide one. And the most beautiful use of it, though, is now on the Hudson River, making New York, again, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. See. <laughs> Here's one. Here's a telephone. It says, uh, it says uh, the, uh, they've now got the uh, uh, telephone. And, and did you know, uh, that was a surprise. Do you know that as early as 1905, they had automatic telephone systems? How do you like that? You know, a, a dial system. An automatic. The big article here, it says, Small Telephone Exchange operates without operators. It says, In the town of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, an automatic telephone exchange has been installed. 100 patrons being able to use the system without the necessity for an operator. The telephone instrument used by each subscriber is shown in the picture. In using it, the receiver is first taken down. Here's the way you do it. The pointer is placed at the desired number of the dial and then released. And then immediately the selector connects with the desired line. 
How's that? That's better than we have. <laughs> it says the exchange consists comprises a complete centralized battery system, so forth, and of course the cost of service to all the subscribers has been notably reduced and in fact can eventually be free. There's the clouded crystal ball for you. <laughs> uh, there's, there's one in here, of course, 1903. Uh, I don't, uh, if you know anything about the history of technology, you know that, that just two years before that, what happened that has changed our world forever? Two years before 1905, rather. What happened? That's right. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew their first, and in fact, in the end of 1903 it was, uh, they flew their first airplane. So that meant just about two years before this magazine was published, the first plane flew. And there is not a single mention of aviation in, that in this magazine. You know, it took a long time for the Wright brothers to get anybody interested in the fact that they had flown. And uh, they couldn't really get anybody interested here in the States. Did you ever hear about that, how they went back to Ohio? And uh, they, they sent out the news and nobody even printed it. Uh, they, you know, they made a big announcement to the Associated Press, and it was carried around a couple of little papers. as uh, two, uh, two, you know, two fools fly in the Kitty Hawk claimed, and uh, so they went back. They were very disgusted, and they went back to Dayton, and uh, they were getting pretty bugged. And there was a big vacant field out there in Dayton, and so they began to fly out there, and people paid no attention. They'd come along, they'd ride in the streetcar pass, and they'd see these guys flying around, and they just thought it was, uh, you know. Some kind of a curio. <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting story about that. Here, here one of the big uh, stories in this thing is uh, motor designed, electric motor now, that's able to lift 10 pounds. Electric motor that's been designed that can do that. Uh, George, you never know what they're going to do. Uh, it's going to get out of hand. Uh, here's, uh, here's one here. I think there's a lot of great stuff here that, uh, <laughs> for example, here's one that says uh, how to convert... How to convert railroad wheels for automobile use. <laughs> I kind of like that one. Uh, can you imagine a car with the... Here, here's one here. Oh, a new, si new sign designed. It says uh, the, American, the American Motor League. Now, you know what was beginning to emerge then? You can see it in this magazine. Now, you know, all of us today in the, in the world of the automobile and total transportation... We accept signs as if they always were there. You know, signs that say stop, danger, curve ahead, slow up, no parking, and so on. They were unknown in 1905. And in fact, a sign placed by the side of the road was so unusual that it was the subject for a special article in Popular Mechanics. And here's what it is. The American Motor League, never heard of that outfit, has adopted a standard danger sign shown in the illustration and there it is and it looks almost like the ones today it's a big triangular shaped sign and it says danger and it says the league will furnish free the stencils for painting the signal which can be done by anyone in a few minutes we have, we urge people all over the country to put these signs up it says you never know when a car might arrive <laughs> in other words people put up their own signs it was not the you know that was not the something that the city did and, uh, boy, this is a great magazine to look at. Now, I, I, so don't think that it was the 19, now don't assume that it was the 1905 magazine which affected me, so I just want to warn you. But, uh, 
I just never knew this magazine went back that far. And apparently at that time, uh, they must have gone back earlier than that because there's a note on the top of the cover. It says, the largest circulation of any mechanical publication, publication in the world. It cost 10 cents. And look, you can get a pin. You can get a pin that tells what your, uh, what your uh, trade is. In those days, a guy was recognized by, you know, he's a carpenter, he's a bricklayer, he's a, uh, a railroad man, he's a millwright. And you could buy a mechanic's badge of any type, just state your trade, made of hard white metal, not plated, will not tarnish, size shown in engraving, beautiful, like silver pin, can be used as a charm or on your watch bracelet. Price, 15 cents. It says, are you a mechanic? Be proud of it. Let the world know that you're a man of substance. Already there was an outfit that says we can now cure motor phobia. It says, do you have somebody in your house that's totally in love with motors? Give him this medicine. 17 cents per dose. Uh, WOR New York. And we have uh, coming up Lester Smith by George with the news. News in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. In South Vietnam, 3,000 troops have been sent to relieve the men at besieged Firebase 6. The advance elements of the relief force were last reported within a few miles of the Central Highlands base. Air